You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're re-airing snail stories celebrating the year of the Kahuli. Hawaii was once home to 750 different species of snails. Many are extinct now. Today, we kick off our show with a personal story from Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, whose journey to the state's top jobs started with the humble snail. Take a listen. This will sound a bit bizarre, but I am grateful to have become governor very indirectly because of snails. And the reason is this. When I was 18, I was in a, a great course in my high school, my public school. I had this wonderful teacher who passed last week. His name was Ed Schroth. He and I were doing the research biology course together. He was our mentor and teacher. And he, it, he, I said I wanted to do something about the environment as an 18-year-old. And he said, well, there's acid rain here. You're in Pennsylvania. And we came up with the idea to study its effects on snails. And the snail I studied was Helisoma travolus. It was just an, a snail that was common to Western Pennsylvania. And so we put together this research project and we studied the impact on the embryology of the snail. So I would go and collect coal off the railroad tracks and then we'd cook the coal to lower the pH of water and then we'd see whether or not it you know, affected snails' um, reproductive rates and their survival. And lo and behold, I end up winning the Westinghouse scholarship as a result of that research which sent me to the college of my choice, which sent me to medical school, which sent me to the health corps, which ultimately landed me in Hawaii, and then I became governor. So without snails... And the rest is history. From the snail trail to the governor's chambers, we head out to the hot, dry trails out at Kaena Point. That's where a half a dozen species of native snails went extinct, and the puzzle pieces of their passing are sitting in plain sight. We paid a visit to a snail cemetery where an eroding cliffside has scattered clues to a snail mystery. Why would there be so many dead snails that normally like wet, shady valleys in a dry, hot shoreline? The story starts with a marine biologist who never thought he would tread into a land snail territory. But just a stone's throw from the ocean is a treasure trove of natural history here in the islands. We took a trek with Hawaii Pacific University professor Brendan Holland, who recalled that during a previous visit, he and his researchers, Samantha Arsenault, came across 2,000 snail shells eroding out of the cliffside. Those shells long ago were of more than a half a dozen extinct species. And in a short visit this summer, we came across these snail clues, which made this professor wonder why they died here. What led to this mass extinction event? If you look at a shell with its pointy end down, the opening of a shell is generally on the right side, like being right-handed. This is special because, as you can see, its opening, or its, its aperture, opposite end of the apex, is on the left side. He's a lefty. He's a lefty, just like me. It's a, basically, this is a pretty unusual snail. It's in an endemic family. So again, biology people get kind of excited about endemism in Hawaii. This is the only species of animal or plant that the entire family evolved only in Hawaii. They're called the Amostridae, and this family had about 325 different species before humans started altering the habitat, releasing invasive species. Again, this, this lineage went extinct long before human contact, so long before people had arrived in Hawaii. So probably about 10,000 years ago, we think, that's the youngest shell we've dated with radiocarbon dating at Kayana Point. We think this might have gone extinct around that time. And that's probably also a time when this entire ecosystem was drying and warming and the vegetation was completely changing rapidly to be more of this scrubby kind of open, arid type from mesic, which is sort of almost rainforest, you know, where there was complex canopy and broad-leaved native trees and palms, um, which we think was sort of more like the conditions when these were thriving. But you can see there are literally thousands and thousands of shells eroding from this surface. And they're probably also tumbling down, and we know that because, you know, in, in this handful, we probably would see dates from around 10,000 years ago back to as old as 46,000 years all together, meaning that, right, they, they died in place upslope, and then now they're just accumulating here in what is called, paleontologists call this a death assemblage, quaint term. 
It's a graveyard. It's yeah, a graveyard. Yeah, it's a graveyard, but it's not all organized by date of death, right? It's all mixed, yeah, in this graveyard. But so this is in the same family, believe it or not, this little tiny one, which again, this is a dextral one. This will be on the quiz. <laughs> Kidding. And this one turns the other way. So these are in the same, these are in the same family. They're actually different genus level taxonomy. Then we see this super tiny one here. This is a helicynid. Believe it or not, that's an adult. So it's maybe two millimeters total length. And that, that was an adult snail. And we've identified this one to species. Some of these have yet to be described. The thing that you know allowed me to say, hey, this is kind of unusual, was I had just started working at the University of Hawaii as a tree snail conservation biologist. And so I had been sort of training my eye to separate sort of the difference between the lineages that live in the marine environment, and there's lots and lots of species in the ocean, but they're fundamentally different looking than these land snails. And so all of these land snails here in this open area were so shocking to me. At that time, we were working with some of the Acatinella species um, where in order to get on site, we were taking helicopters literally to the high ridges and summits of the Waianae Mountains and the Koalau Mountains and working in you know, downpours and cloud forests in these really rich, you know, vegetated, dripping, mossy environments. And so these are some of the same lineages, the same families. But if you look around, you just say, well, wait a second, what's wrong with this picture? There's nothing but grass here, dry grass, right? It's open, it's exposed. Yeah, in plain sight. Yeah, or it is right out in the open. So yeah, so, so I did realize something weird was going on here. And we've subsequently done some isotope dating and uh, stable isotope analysis and have begun to kind of reconstruct what this might have been like 10 to 45,000 years ago. And sure enough, all the data that we're looking at says that this was indeed a, a wetter, cooler environment with much more precipitation, um, cooler daytime temperatures, and more complex vegetation. Holland tells us it wasn't until he could carbon date these shells that he had the data that would explain why these snail stories matter. The isotope testing looked at the precipitation and the plants that existed back in the day, and the carbon dating suggests these snails went extinct 10 to 45,000 years ago. It actually puts an estimated time of death, right? So the actual date that the shell stopped accumulating carbon and so the range of ages of these shells so far has been between 10,000, that's the youngest shell we've tested, 10,000 years before present, and 40, 46,000 years before present. So there's a range of time in all of the shells that we've analyzed that is just that little window, and we don't really know why other than we assume that at about 10,000 years ago, conditions became unsuitable for these all of these species. This is a community extinction, right? So we see maybe seven species that are all extinct and all have representative taxa. So in biology, we talk about extant versus, I try to pronounce it very clearly because it sounds so similar to its opposite term, which is extinct. Extinct is something that no longer exists. Extant means it's still present and still alive. So all of these have extant relatives in Hawaii that live in, again, very, very different conditions. So you never thought you'd be a snail sleuth. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I am? That's awesome. No, I, I have always been interested in conservation biology and always interested in diversity and what drives diversity and what diminishes diversity. And so this is such a fascinating place to me because I've spent most of my 24 years in Hawaii as a biologist studying conservation of species that are being impacted by human activity. So human activity sort of is this ever-present sort of, it's the, you know, the, the gorilla in the room, if you will, for conservation biologists. But here we have a case of a community that went extinct long before human contact in the islands. And so it's really interesting to me to, to see a natural, you know, sort of broad scale extinction event right here before our eyes that happened pretty recently due to changing climate conditions. 
I mean, this is, this is so exciting as somebody who, again, is, is studying extinction and studying diversity. And one of the thoughts that I've had through studying this you know, event that happened out here is I want to be careful to contextualize this extinction event as a non-anthropogenic event. This doesn't change the fact that 95% plus of the extinction that's happening on the planet right now is, and we call it the Anthropocene, right? We're in this new era, this new mass extinction event that's happening because of pollution, habitat loss, overharvesting, invasive species, the usual list of suspects. And I don't want this to be ammunition for people to say, look, extinction has always been part of nature. Yes, it has, but this is a rare example in studies now of conservation biology where humans had nothing to do with this. That does not change the fact. It does not take away from the idea that the vast majority of the biodiversity crisis that we're experiencing is caused by human activity. I mean, this is like an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> you come out here, you don't even know, you know what, what you're looking at. Yeah, as I was saying, Catherine, I've been in Hawaii for, you know, 25 years, 24 years, and I saw this the first year I moved here, and, and, I, and it was sort of tantalizing, but it was just in the back of my mind. It wasn't a priority until recently we were able to get funding, you know, to pay for the analyses that have to be, we have to send the shells off to the mainland, and it's quite costly, so each shell is, you know, upwards of $250 to get these little numbers back for the isotope ratios. And so tantalizing and a little bit, you know, a long time in the coming in a lot of ways for me personally, as well as, you know, nobody else has studied these to this extent. And so now we're gaining a lot of momentum and realizing that there are deposits like this on neighbor islands as well. And so we hope to expand this study and see if this was a sort of a simultaneous paleoclimate uh, change that led to these sort of community extinction events, or whether, you know, there were differences on a small scale. We assume that this was happening across the islands. For example, at Mo'omomi, the TNC reserve on uh, western Molokai, I've been out there and there are handfuls of shells there as well. And they're all different species than here. And we have yet to sample and identify and then isotope, do the isotope analyses of those as well. So I guess when you think back to the day when you were out here and within a space of two hours you hit 2,000 shells, I mean, this is something. Yeah, and so my student Samantha Arsenault, who finished her master's degree recently, and I came out here on a particularly hot summer day. We had planned this in advance. So in addition to the isotope analysis, we also want to study things like, you know, sort of reconstructing what the evenness and species richness was at this site. And you can tell, Catherine, from just the few minutes we spent, the most common species is, is this little guy, right? This little dextral amostrid. Um, and sure enough, we set a timer, we counted, you know, we just said, okay, go and collect as many snails as we could in an hour. And then we take them back to the laboratory, we sort them by species, and we can, you know, statistically say, here's the most common, it's this percentage of the total, um, here's the rarest one, and that sort of thing. And that, that's one way to sort of begin to understand what the diversity of these lineages was when they were thriving out here. So, Voila, the snail secret. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. Oh, this has been pleasure. a real eye-opener. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is like, it's combing for treasure. Yay. I'm glad you could come out. That was Brendan Holland, HPU professor, sharing the snail story that originally aired on July 3rd, 2023. Museum is hosting a voting platform for the state snail, and you have until October 13th to cast your vote. Each island will have an endemic snail to represent them. Noreen Young is the malacology curator at Bishop Museum. She explained how you can take part in this novel election and get a pack of snail trading cards to boot. So this actually started in 2019. We had a, a Kamehameha School student, a high school student, that was wanting to figure out ways to uh, show appreciation and awareness, our land snails, the importance to the environment, as well as to the Hawaiian people. 
And he was like, why don't we have a state snail? I'm like, I don't know. And so he drafted a resolution and it actually went through the House um, and the Senate and they were very supportive of it. However, he picked one snail and this snail is a spectacular and beautiful snail, but it's only endemic to Oahu, uh, Lamanella sanguinea. And so the suggestions that were told to us was, since uh, a lot of these snails are highly endemic to each of the islands, why don't each of the islands have an island state snail? And we thought that was brilliant. Um, and then of course, you know, COVID hit and you know, um, things stalled. Um, but now this is the year of the Kahuli, Connor um, Kaliko Kalahiki, that was a student, so we're hoping to get this project back up, but also get uh, more community involvement. And we had extra time now to get uh, more information and more public outreach promotions and things like that. So this, this voting website, uh, we were able to develop. And then also we are coupling with another intern's project. So Auntie Huang is an, was another intern at Bishop Museum, and he also wanted to raise awareness and appreciation. And he's a Pokemon fanatic. So he thought if we made TCG trading card game with snail profiles that we could use um, to promote donation um, and things like that. So a so, certain so amount of donation to our Hawaiian Land Snail Conservation Fund will be giving packs of these uh, snail species cards away. And so that people can trade them, they can play them. So there's a whole full-on game. Andy wrote instructions on how to play the game. And he also put in tidbits about, you know, where they're located, their, their distribution, their conservation status. And also the rarer they are, the more powerful the action card is. So it's really cool. And he also made invasive species cards. Um, so it's a full-on game. And we're hoping to be promoting this. And we also collaborated with Solomon Enos, incredible artist, and he wanted to help out. So we have a special edition TCG cards. The first 18 snail species are the 18 snail island state candidate species. And he drew these really cool cartoon images of these um, snails. We put them on these cards and they're going to be special edition TCG trading cards. And you're rolling this out in July? Yes, we're hoping to get this all in July. We're going to get pre-orders so we know how much to order. And then with every donation, we'll be sending them five cards, 10 cards, the whole set, uh, depending on how much they, they, um, they don't um, donate. All of these funds go straight into um, Hawaiian Land Snail Research, helping with internships, helping to support students, get opportunities in science, helping with these educational outreach. Um, so everything goes towards everything that we can do to help our surviving Hawaiian Land Snails in Hawaii. And so if we're voting for the state snails for each island, mm -hmm. that kicks off. You've got uh, an online voting portal mm -hmm. yeah. and you'll announce the results later this fall. Yes, yeah, so we have the second annual Kahuli Festival at Bishop Museum September 23rd, so please come here. We're trying to uh, get artists, uh, anyone who has any um, artwork that would like to promote and raise capacity and awareness for Hawaiian land snails. We're gonna have an auction that can um, also raise funds for Hawaiian land snails. We're gonna have researchers talking about their work. We're going to have um, storytelling, everything that we can think of for Kahuli, for our Pupu Kaneohe, our Hini Hini uh, Ula, all of our Hawaiian land snails. Well, I've just had a great time learning about Snail Spa Day by <laughs> some of your, you know, your volunteers have been sharing the story of what they're doing. Another volunteer tells me about how she has to hunt for snail eggs, the tiniest egg hunt ever. You know, but it's those kinds of stories, the people that love snails and are donating their time for the cause. Yes, um, so we have a, a great Lancel Compton rearing here. We also partnered with the state as well as the Honolulu Zoo. We have 23 species of Lancels that we're rearing in the collections here. And some of them are extinct in the wild. And some of them we estimate that will go extinct in the next 10 years if we don't ramp up our research and our understanding of how to be saving them. And this entire program is primarily run by volunteers. So if you want to help out um, and help count some snails in our, our program, then we would love to have you. We also we also have a lot of opportunities to have students do research with us because um, a lot of the things we, that we do are trying to monitor health. We do invasive snails also because we don't want to have in, invasive snails um, uh, impacting our forests, our streams, our ocean, or our snails too, right? Um, so we have a lot of projects that the community can definitely help us out. And you don't have to have any biology knowledge at all. We will train you. We will put your expertise or what your interests are to work in our collection so that we can help the Hawaiian land snails. 
That was Bishop Museum snail curator Noreen Young explaining the election underway for the state snail of your island. The segment originally aired on July 6th. The good news is you can vote for your favorite snail until October 13th. And mark your calendars for the Saturday, September 23rd Festival of Snails as we celebrate the Year of the Kahuli. We'll have links about the election on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Hawaii Public Radio is looking to hire a corporate relations associate. If you're experienced in establishing new business support, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Read more about the position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Earlier this year, Bishop Museum scientists snagged a $1.6 million grant from the National Science Institute and the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation. It's to advance research to prevent our native snails from going extinct. Ken Hayes and Noreen Young are all about snails and are excited to take their research to another level. They completed a survey of over a thousand snail sites, the largest survey of its kind ever conducted in Hawaii. It's regarded as a diversity hotspot. They found a number of snails that were previously thought to be extinct in the wild. He said the infusion of money will build on the research over the past decade with an emphasis on conservation through collaboration. Think of it as eyes in the forest, much like eyes on the reef. This grant actually is going to be incredibly impactful. So that, that I give you the context of those 10 years of grants because those were mostly trying to find out what's left, where it was, and identify it all. Now we had got, finally gotten to the point where we could start answering more profound questions that we needed to answer in order to conserve them. Like we need to know what they eat. We need to know why they live where they do. We need to know what's impacting them. And NSF traditionally gives grants for fundamental research. And then you have to go to other agencies to get money to do conservation. And NSF will tell you, like, we don't necessarily fund direct conservation action. We fund the research to do it. And then you've got to get money usually. And it's this weird disconnect that happens in science. Um, but recently, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation partnered with the National Science Foundation to offer this program that says NSF will pay for the research, Paul G. Allen Family Foundation will pay for the conservation action and the assessment of it. And so that's the money we got. So we got $1.6 from this new program with this partnership. And it's really to address those fundamental questions that we need to know about why are things disappearing and what do we need to know to save them. And so this one's really targeted at addressing um, what snails eat and how we can improve their diets in captivity so that we can build up populations to re-release back into the wild as we restore their ecosystems. And this came about because you were poking around and you were discovering live snails that people thought were extinct. Yeah, so Nor between Nori and myself, Dr. Young and myself and colleagues, over the last 10 years, we've rediscovered about 200 species. So now the list of extant species, living species now, sits just above 300. And we still think there are more out there. We still, every time we go in the field, we often find a, a new one. 10% of everything we find is new. 
they were in various places. The, the biggest issues were that they were in places that people don't typically go, right? Except maybe bird burgers, right? People looking for rare birds, but they're up looking in with their binoculars and listening for sounds, and they weren't on the ground or poking through the trees to find these snails. And it, it took collaborations with like the Plant Extinction um, Protection Program, uh, DLNR, and other programs where they were going in the field to these remote places to look for rare plants or other things. And so we would tag along and then we would train them how to look for snails. And that's really, I mean, it's not just Dr. Young and I going places. It, we've done gone to more than a thousand sites across the islands. It's the largest um, it's the most comprehensive land snail survey ever undertaken in Hawaii. It's, it's pretty impressive. We can show you some of the data from it. It's just incredible. But really the, the power of it is, and, and that's the thematic framework for the grant we have now, is conservation through collaboration, right? It's really, we can't be everywhere, right? And we can't go everywhere. But what we have is a really great dedicated team of researchers, conservationists, volunteers, all across the state on every island that are all the time going out. We've got the Sierra Club going for hikes. We've got the Oahu Trail Club. We've got tons of these people. And, and they're going out. And so what we do is we train them, and we're developing snail apps so that they can take photographs and send it to us. And we can go, oh, that's a rare snail. Mark the location. We'll go back and survey for it. So it's really through that sort of broad collaborative effort that we've sort of rejuvenated Hawaiian land snail research and, and really been able to put a lot of species back on the sort of conservation map, if you will. And it's really fitting then because this is the year of the snail yeah. and we can focus on what we thought <laughs> was out there and what we are learning about yeah. is really out there. And now you've got all these eyes on the forest. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's amazing. So we just we just came back from two days in the field up at the highest point on Oahu, um, Mount Ka'ala. Um, at one time, there were 36 endemic species of land snail up there. Um, there's more than 200 species of plants, hundreds and hundreds of species of insects. I mean, it's a really magical place on Oahu that's been protected for more than 30 years. We took uh, 12 interns that are part of this program up, and we've been training them in uh, snail surveys. But more importantly, just not just looking for snails, but we did these um, experimental surveys where we're looking at where are snails distributed in the habitat, trying to determine what their plant preferences are. Because they're not randomly distributed. They seem to prefer certain plant hosts to be on. And we think that's being driven by their microbiome, the plant's microbiome, because snails in Hawaii are kind of un unusual. If you go elsewhere in the world, and even our garden snails here, the pest ones, they eat plants. They damage your plants, and people don't like them. Hawaiian land snails adapted to eating microbial films that occur on the leaves of native plants. And so you can see them scraping there, but they're not damaging the plants. So we, our hypothesis is, is that they are highly beneficial to native ecosystems, helping farm and, and uh, take care of the forest. And we know that they're really responsible for a lot of the nutrient turnover. So they, they put uh, decaying material and fungus and all that stuff back into the soil for the plants to use. And Hawaiian plants tend to be very nutrient poor because our soils are not really high in nitrogen and other components that plants need. This is why invasive plants are so bad because they're really efficient at using this stuff up and keeping it away from our native plants and that's why they can take over. And we think the snails were an important component of helping keep Hawaiian forest intact. So the researchers out there that are looking at, you know, saving our native plants, I mean, it, it really is, it's symbiotic. I mean, you've got to help, you know, one or the other. It, it absolutely is. So for example, you know, we've got lots of people out on the landscape going, oh, we need to restore this system, restore this ecosystem on Maui. And we have to ask the question first is, what are we restoring it to? Right? Are we just going to plant ohia? Ohia, you know, spectacular, beautiful part of Hawaiian culture and uh, the Hawaiian islands, but is it the only thing we need, right? It makes up something like 70% of our forests, and it's an early colonizer, but there's this beautiful understory of plants um, like Brucesia, so Canavao, right, and Malicope, and a lot of these different understory plants. And it turns out our studies for the last, since in about 2014, we've been doing this on each of the islands, looking at this, and we found that there's two or three plants in the understory that are really critical for snails. They seem to prefer those plants across all islands, and no matter what lineage of snails. So we're talking really diverse groups of snails, but they all seem to prefer these plants because I think they're all eating kind of the same things. And that's what sort of led to this grant, part of it anyway, was to look at that question, why? And so are you focusing on a particular island in a particular spot in the forest where you're trying to rejuvenate? No. So, so that's the power of this as well. I mean, this is really hard work to do. 
Um, as the interns, if you talk to some of them today, will tell you we just spent you know two 12-hour days in the field, just grueling work, but really rewarding. So you can't just look at one spot or one group because the Hawaiian Islands are incredibly diverse. They're a diversity hotspot, and that means for ecosystems, for species, everything. And so we've been doing this sort of spot approach, trying to assemble the pieces together. But what we realize is like we need to take a broader approach and and connect all of these pieces. And so what we're actually doing is we're going to examine about eight sites over the next three years, a couple on Maui, a couple on Kauai, and then uh, four of them on Oahu. And they're going to be in the Waianais and in the Koalaos, but also we're going to do wet, wet forest, upper elevation wet forest, but we're also going to do these drier music forests. And we want to see if there's differences in the different types of forest and different types of ecosystems and how they differ and why. And then we're also looking at litter decomposition as well, looking at how the microbiome changes from the, the living plants to the decaying leaves on the floor. Because then we also have a whole lot of snails that live in the leaf litter, breaking down leaf litter and the fungus and stuff there. Was there a particular snail that you just got so excited about because you know you thought they didn't exist out there anymore and you came across it? I think it has to be some of the first ones we found, but I, I'd have to say the the one we'll show, we can show you today is Kaala subrutia. It's a monotypic genus, meaning it's the only species in that genus. And this is a, 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 a circular snail about the size of a nickel, right? It's, it's sort of a spiral kind of flat, but it's got these beautiful, beautiful colors um, in its body that show through its shell. Um, and Nori, uh, Dr. Yering and I, and uh, a couple others back in 2009 found this snail while serving it again for non-natives in, in Mount Kala. And we're like, wow, I don't know what this is. And we figured out what it was. And we were like, oh my gosh, it hadn't been, it was described in 1924 and none had been reported since 1960s. And here it was. And, and so we've been monitoring it ever since. And we're doing captive rearing with it here in um, the, the labs now to try to bring the populations back up. So that's probably one of my most exciting finds is it's a really beautiful snail. We have the first photographs of it, its babies, right? And that's the other big thing is a lot of these things, we didn't even know how they gave birth. Some lay eggs, some give live birth. So it was really critical to start documenting that kind of information. And so you have a treasure trove of research hidden away in all these little vaults, but you know, how then do we share this with the rest of the world? So that's one of the great things that um, Dr. Young has really been spearheading here is the, the senior curator of malacology for land snails. Um, she got a, a, a few years back in 2018, we got, we got another grant from National Science Foundation really focused on collections management. And that grant really was a collaboration between us and six U.S. mainland institutions with the largest holdings of Pacific Island land snails. And so we put those together and the, the goal of that was to digitize the information associated with that and then make it publicly available. And we, we built a portal um, called the Pillsbury Portal. Um, it's Pacific Island Land Snail Research and Biodiversity Inventory. But it's now online and anyone in the world can access this. And you can just type in, you can do a lot of things. You can type in like Oahu and see all the snails that have ever been recorded there that are in records. Or you can just type in a species name and find it. I mean, there's just, and now we're at the stage where we're scanning the old historical maps and the ledgers and the notebooks from researchers in the past. Um, it, it's quite an amazing treasure trove of information is that you know it's all great to sit and do all of this research and get funding to just do the research and publish it in scientific papers we've got to do that part but one of the biggest limitations to conservation is getting people to appreciate and and understand what the issues are and what we share this planet with. And so part of that is doing things like having the year of Kahuli. Like, you know, we petitioned along with DLNR to get the governor, declare this the year of the Kahuli so that we can raise awareness and build capacity. So the open house is, is part of that program, is to bring the public in and share with them. You know, share with them what our Kuleana is, right? Here's, here's our responsibility and our privilege to take care of this and, and we have to understand it in order to take care of it. And so we're super excited to share not only the historical collections, but um, our captive rearing program as well, which has more than 11,000 snails in it. We're proud of these snails. We are, we are. We, we're very proud of the work that everyone's been doing. I mean, it's taken an army of volunteers and, and staff and other people just super dedicated to taking care of, uh, of these, these species, but also the, the ecosystems on which we rely. Well, Ken, thank you so much, and on with your open house. No, thank you very much for joining us. That was Ken Hayes, principal investigator on a Bishop Museum project to study Hawaii's native snails. We've got more about snails coming up, so don't go away.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Imagine having to move an intensive care unit filled with patients across the island. That's what happened recently with our native snails. Billed as a historic move, a mollus mullercate, a caravan of the rarest and endangered snails, made the trip across the H3 in cars. It was the largest mass migration of laboratory-reared native snails. We paid a visit to their more secure, spacious new home in Pearl City. We first met conservation biologist David Sisko years ago when a hurricane threatened the remote laboratory rearing facility in Manawili. Sisko is with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He says he can breathe easier now that their precious cargo is in a more protected facility. Twice, under threat of storms, staff had to evacuate the 8,000 rare snails to a downtown office and were prepared to spend the night tending to them. Cisco walks us around the new lab to introduce us to some of the rarest of the rare. At one time, the striped species was down to about six snails and is now at 60. In this cage here, we have Acatonella fulgens, and it's arguably one of the rarest animals in the world. These are town snails, so they would have existed in Manoa Valley, Palolo, Niu Valley, anywhere on the ridges and summit areas in the greater Honolulu area. And they're really pretty. I mean, they have a turban shape and it's white and brown. They're white and brown striped. We've got some that are yellow and some that almost look plaid. Yeah, they're really variable, really beautiful snail. Historically, they were all kinds of beautiful colors. And they're actually a species that was heavily used in lay. I think that is because they were close to a population center and they were relatively lower down than some of our species, so they were easy to get to. And so this particular type of snail was brought over in this massive caravan earlier this month into this new facility. Yes. every single individual in the world was in a car driving over H3 as we came to our new lab. Yep. And so to think that all these precious snails, this precious cargo, if something happened, they could have been all wiped out in one fell swoop. Yeah, you know, it, it was a nerve-wracking experience for us, having so many precious public trust resources and vehicles at the same time. We had to basically think of every bad thing that could possibly happen and how we could mitigate for that. You've got these snails in special containers, in special chambers. Talk about the conditions that you have to keep them in. Most of the species we rear are from upper elevation habitats, 2,000 feet to 4,000 feet. So it's cooler, it's wetter, more humid, and the snails need those conditions to thrive. And so it's much warmer down here where we are closer to sea level. And so basically our environmental chambers are mimicking summit habitat. So it's, it's much cooler. We have a day and night cycle. Humidity goes up and down, similar to how it would in, in their natural environment. We have a misting system that is piped in to each individual cage. And periodically through the day, they get the equivalent of cloud mist. And at night, it gets mistier and, and wetter, just like it would on the summit. This encourages normal behavior. And that way, when we release them back out into the wild, they, you know, they're accustomed to those conditions. So essentially, though, high maintenance, like Goldilocks. Yeah, yeah, they're just like Goldilocks. They're pretty high maintenance animals to take care of. They require constant care. Cisco's team works diligently feeding and counting the snails day in and day out. Did you know that some species lay eggs and others give birth to live mini-me's? Such are the details in the secret, serious life of snails. Here's Cisco giving us context about the integral part they play in our forest habitat and the researchers doing the behind-the-scenes work to save snails. Our facility is a, it's a hospital for species. And so we currently rear 38 species from five islands. And most of them are extinct in the wild. And if they're not, they are very close to being extinct in the wild. And so how many are we nurturing here? How many patients do we have? It's a revolving door because we are releasing snails constantly and bringing some new ones in. But currently we have over 8,000 snails in the facility here. So you're a snail bank. We are, yeah, there, you know, there are no uh, snail seed banks there, but we are essentially the equivalent of that. Unfortunately, you can't, like a seed, like a plant seed, you can't put it in suspended animation in a freezer or, or some kind of storage. They have to be kept alive. The population has to be kept going. So you can think of these as like little tiny embers of a once, you know, roaring fire of a healthy species. And now we're just trying to keep those embers around and and restart the, restart the flame. So it's a big undertaking, and 
you know, since we first talked, you know, you folks were being threatened by a hurricane that was headed your way, and you were in a trailer, and the, the concern was that you could get easily blown away or blown over, and the, the snails would not be in a very good spot. But you folks had to evacuate a couple times. We did. We had to evacuate twice, and in a hurry, too. While everyone else was, you know, tying down their houses and their outdoor furniture, we were quickly ushering snails over the poly into downtown Honolulu into our administration building, which is a concrete, substantial building. Okay, so you were down there in these office buildings and you were prepared to stay overnight. Yep, our team, we, it was myself and a different time, it was one of our other technicians who stayed there with the snails and we were prepared. Luckily, the, you know, the hurricanes didn't manifest and we were able to take the snails back. But if they did, we would have planned to stay with them until we could get them somewhere more permanent. So in this new facility, you've got more elbow room and the ability to expand? Yeah, we have more, more elbow room, that's for sure, more areas to work, um, and we have more space to bring in critical species. So just for background, the Hawaiian Islands had over 750 different land snail species. Almost all of them exist nowhere else in the world. And unfortunately, due to introduced predators, climate change impacts, and some historical impacts like overcollection for their beautiful shells, about half of those are extinct already. And we have about 100 species that will be gone you know, within the next decade without significant conservation intervention like our facility here. We're going to have to bring them in. And so we're really trying to build capacity to deal with that onslaught and keep these species around. And you folks are working with uh, other researchers you know, at uh, Bishop Museum, uh, you know, at HPU, just because, you know, we need to know more about how to keep these snails alive. Yeah, so this is definitely not just a state-led effort. This is a partnership effort. We've realized, you know, that this is not just happening in one area. It's across islands. To pull this off, to save that many species, requires a partnership effort. And so we're working with private landowners, we're working with researchers at Bishop Museum and the UH system, the Honolulu Zoo, the Army. We really have a great network of researchers and wildlife biologists that are all really invested in this and um, helping to build capacity and really make a positive impact. And talk about that because we just met the folks up uh, at Schofield who are working with plants, but they also keep an eye out for snails. The Army has a natural resource team and they do conservation for snails in the Waianae Mountains. So some of the species we work with, they also work with. One of our components to the captive rearing is putting them back out, right? And we put them back out into protected areas that are fenced off to keep the predators out. And the Army is the one that came up with that design. The snail jail. Yeah, we like to call them Kipuka Kahuli. <laughs> We're trying to rebrand, but yeah, yeah, snail jail. And so, so describe to our listeners what that means. So you can imagine a, a relatively small fence unit. They're smaller than an acre. These are up in mountainous areas and snail habitat. They're a tall solid wall fence and that's intended for it to be slippery. So rodents and Jackson's chameleons, two of the major predators of snails can't climb in. They've got a rolled hood at the top. Gravity works on our side. You know, rats can't get over that rolled hood. But the worst predator of all is the rosy wolf snail. And this is a predatory snail that was brought here by the Territorial Department of Agriculture back in the 1950s as a biocontrol for giant African snails, which everyone has those in their yard. To keep those snails out, we have, we have three barriers on the fence. One of them is a angled skirt. It's at a 15 degree angle. It, it goes around the whole circumference. The rosy wolf snails have a hard time getting, getting under there and maneuvering, they get stuck. But if they get over that, we have another shelf that sticks out with pokey copper wire mesh. It's also pointed down, so gravity kind of works on our side. It's, they don't like it, it's pokey. But if they get over that, we electrocute them. So these are like Godzilla snails, I guess, if you will. <laughs> yeah, you can, you know, often we find dozens of them under the angle barrier. They get stuck. It's almost like they're trying to storm the castle. It's bad, yeah. Well, just recently, I think Florida put out a big alert because they found these giant snails from Africa, I think. They're, they're huge. We have giant African snails everywhere here. And our snails that we're keeping are not giant African snails. Everyone thinks they have our rare snails in their yard, but they don't. <laughs> They have giant African snails, and they do. They'll eat your flowers, they'll eat your crops. They, um, at one time, they were a significant agricultural pest when they were first introduced. 
which is why there was so much effort to find a biocontrol to try and control them. Do we have these up in those areas where we have the snail gels? Giant African snails are largely in lower elevation, agricultural, urban areas. They are not up on our summits, but the rosy wolf snail is now on all main Hawaiian islands and is up in some of our most, most remote forest reserves, unfortunately. Okay, so they've got targets on their backs from where you sit. Um, yeah, they're very difficult to deal with. They're very cryptic. Removing them from a small fence unit requires manual labor. Like we have to just physically search through the leaf litter over and over again for hundreds of hours to find them all. And these enclosures, so who maintains them? It depends. Our, our team maintains quite a few. The Army Natural Resources Program has quite a few of them that they maintain on Lanai, Pulama Lanai maintain several and we're building some on Maui and I just found out we got funding for one on Big Island just today I got news. We're really, you know, we're taking the technology that the army came up with to try and save these snails and we're helping disseminate that information and get it out to partners and try and get these fences built fast. So the, the short term outlook, the five to 10 year outlook, we're rushing around to try and keep these animals on earth and that's our goal. And that's going to involve captive rearing and other stopgap measures like getting these fence units up and getting them back into fences. But the long-term outlook would be to try and control predators in larger ecosystem areas and the snails would be able to not have to be, you know, behind a fence, ideally. So I, I think the long-term trajectory would be to try and have snails back out on the landscape where they belong. And then what about climate change? How does that affect your plan of action? Great question. Climate change is really screwing everything up. So snails, unlike a bird, can't fly to a different area when it becomes uncomfortable, right? It's pretty much stuck where, where it has been for eons. They move very slowly. They can't disperse. And so particularly for our lower islands like Kauai and Oahu, the outlook for the leeward side, it's going to get much drier and our summit areas are going to get much less rain potentially. And so you can imagine these species that are summit adaptive to a cold, wet summit are going to get pushed off the summit and there's nowhere, they can't go up, there's nowhere for them to go. And so we're working with researchers at UH and we're trying to understand what those potential impacts could be and where they can survive and that's where we're putting fence units. So it's not all bad news, it's just gonna be changing and we have to facilitate their migration to a better place. That was Dave Sisko of the Department of Land and Natural Resources talking to us about the new laboratory in Pearl City, which is a new home for our native snails. To underscore why conservationists like Cisco are so passionate about what they do, we leave you with this. On January 2019, the last snail of its kind died here on Oahu. He was known as both Lonesome George and Lonely George, and that made us think of a conversation that we had a year before with Dalinar's Kapa'ahi. It was back then that we learned about little George from the Ko'olau area. George was 14 years old, and when he died, an entire species went extinct. We have one species where we only have, we have the last surviving individual known Wow! in captivity. There are others where we uh, have less than 10 individuals, um, and others range in the hundreds. Um, so they're all at, at different levels of, of, uh, of survival here. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, they're really, they're almost extinct. Yeah, yeah. So you're, it's just a race against time, trying to keep the few that we've got alive, whether it's a predator uh, or a hurricane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, with this job, we can we can prepare as much as we uh, as humanly possible for, um, you know, these natural events. But, um, yeah, <laughs> we just got to wait and see. Wow, that's pretty crazy. You only have one left of that snail. Yeah. Where did that one come from? So, uh, Lonesome George is from the uh, northern Koalau area. Lonesome George. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why'd you guys name him that? Oh, it, we have uh, we try to stay cheerful and and <laughs> and humanize <laughs> humanize our snails. So, do you have names for the other snails or what? <laughs> yeah, there are there are uh, names for others. Um, like, like what? Just rattle them off. So we have Emmett. Uh, he 
is a Akatanella Lila from Northern Koalaus. Uh, we have Bernice and Emma and Ruth. They are uh, Akatanella Fogans from the Southern Koalaus. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> we try we try to name our our snails to make them important to us. <laughs> okay, well they're family, I guess. Yes, yes. We, you're taking care of them, so yeah. um, rightly so. That was Kapa'ahi of DLNR's Endangered Snail Program. The 2019 death of Lonesome George at the age of 14 marked the extinction of an entire species. He was the last of his kind. That's it for our Hanaho show honoring the year of the Kahuli, showcasing those who have dedicated their lives to our humble snail, emphasizing why these creatures matter to us in the islands. And a reminder, the Bishop Museum holds a second Kahuli Festival on September 23rd, or stop by the Honolulu Zoo to admire our native snails. You can listen back to our program on the conversation page of our HPR website, or sign up on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Back quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tune in to HPR Monday through Friday at 11. Join the conversation.